Good morning. Good morning. Hey, my name is Matthew. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here at Christ City. We're really thrilled that you're here with us this morning. Thank you to those of you that are joining us via uh, YouTube on our live stream. Really thrilled that everybody is here virtually and in, and in person. Um, this morning, we have Reverend Tanetta Landis Ina uh, joining us and preaching uh, for us this morning. She's a native of North Carolina, moved to Washington, D.C. in 2004. She holds a Master's of Divinity from Wesley Theological Seminary here in D.C. is passionate about marginalized people finding their stories in Scripture, as well as about the new shapes that the church would take in the 21st century. Uh, when Tanetta isn't geeking out um, on uh, the Bible or trying to piece together what God might be doing in this beautiful city that is D.C., um, she is enjoying time with her wife and four-year-old son. We're thrilled and honored to have Reverend Tanetta with us this morning. Let me pray for her as she comes. Heavenly Father, we come to you. God, we pray that you would speak to us through this, your messenger. Spirit, I pray that you would stir in us the things that you intend for us to be comforted by and to be challenged by. Spirit, I pray that you would, um, that you would sanctify this moment and, and our hearing. And God, that we would leave this moment not just having heard something, but that we would leave having been changed by you in some way. So Spirit, I pray that... Um, that you would have your way um, in this moment. In Christ's name, amen. Church, let's welcome Reverend Tanetta. So yeah, so first of all, I just want to say really clearly, hey y'all, I am honored to be in this place, honored to be a part of the extended family of Christ City Church. Um, always honored to get emails and texts from Justin uh, as he is just such a, a faithful and loving colleague in the city, always and encouraging and so faithful for all that this community has done for the church that I started, Resurrection City, D.C. Deeply, deeply, deeply grateful. I also want to say that I'm honored because I might be a little rusty up here, y'all. This is my first time preaching in person, so I'm honored for your patience. <laughs> Your patience and your faith, okay? Because <laughs> sometimes it takes a little faith. Um, and then I want to be clear that I'm honored to be a part of this series specifically on race, faith, and the kingdom of God. Uh, I, 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 I know that last week um, you all heard from Mark Charles, and I also got a chance to talk with him earlier this week. So know that throughout this series you all have been doing some amazing work. And I love the title of this series because I am deeply aware that these kinds of conversations take deep faith. And they also, they demand a grounding in a vision of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is both always political and also deeply, deeply spiritual. I I love the phrase and, and, and have not let go of the phrase kingdom of God because I think it says something that is so clear about kingdom, political relations of power, how we hold power, and of God, the transcendent imminent reality that we are called into. And I also say that I have to admit that the topic does uh, tap into a little bit of frustration for me. I get frustrated that the church is still having these conversations and often at a pretty basic level. 
Um, when I was working on this sermon on Friday, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict came down and I'm frustrated that I'm still in this place of having to comfort people who essentially they're beyond pain. Like they're at a place where even feeling it is difficult because we're all walking around in many ways in this kind of collective trauma. Frustrated that I still have to watch the American church be largely silent on these issues. And I, I, I won't say a lot about that today because I'm both confounded and unsurprised by it and I don't really have the ability to be articulate, but wanna just name that I know that we're probably all holding space for um, what it reveals about how our system loves whiteness. And I'll say more personally that I feel like these conversations are still dominating too much of my life, y'all. Sometimes I just wanna go be a poet. You know, you just wanna spend time on something else. So I get frustrated that we still have to talk about this and that followers of Jesus are often beginners. And that we, when, even when we do have the right words, that we often, those words often aren't followed by transformative action. We still don't know how to relate well to power. So I'll say that in many ways, I'm a writer at heart. I jokingly sometimes think to myself that the first book I will write I don't think I've ever said this publicly, will be on resentment. <laughs> It'll probably be for black and brown Christians grappling with how we can handle resentment and frustration and pain, especially in the context of multi, church that is multi. And then especially for those of us who believe in a vision of multicultural church, who hold that really strongly, a church that is multicultural but does not center whiteness I wonder how we stay healthy as we walk the road toward that vision. How do we deal with the reality that being on this journey costs us more than our white siblings? What do we do with the pain of watching them? Like I sometimes feel the pain in my body of watching white folks wake up to the realities that many of us have known all our lives. What do we do with the sense that our spiritual formation is somehow less valuable than that of our siblings because our deepest questions are so rarely centered publicly, in public space? And then how do we relate in healthy ways to a community that has too often traumatized us by rendering us and our identities and our needs grounded in those identities invisible. And is it possible? I mean, I, I, I you know, read a lot of folks who ask that question too. Is it possible to relate in healthy ways in these kinds of communities, these kinds of spaces? And still, I say all that as somebody who does believe in the vision of church as multi, in the vision that you get in Revelation 7 of this community of difference all gathered beyond number, a community beyond counting, all oriented toward the God of all creation. I love that vision. I love and hunger for the church that you see in Acts that was created at Jerusalem and created at Antioch a church that was birthed by the Spirit, 
in Acts 2 and which calls us, if you notice in that text, that text begins with a cultural redistribution of power and it ends with an economic redistribution of power. I hunger for that kind of church. I long for racial conciliation. I think we have to use that word a little more. And for racial reconciliation, knowing that these are impossible without justice and knowing that the, the, the kind of concrete conditions on the ground have to change in order for us to have it. The concrete relations of power within our communities of faith have to change. I love this quote by Austin Channing Brown she says, in its true form, reconciliation possesses the impossible power of the lion lying down with the lamb. The transformative power of turning swords into plowshares, but instead of pushing for relationships that are deep, transformative, and just, Instead of allowing these efforts to alter our worldview, deepen our sense of connectedness, and inspire us toward a generosity that makes all things right, we have allowed reconciliation to become synonymous for contentedly hanging out together. If we want to be a church that is multi, multi-racial, multi-cultural, which is much harder, uh, and multi in every other sense of the word. We have to let go with this contentment with, with hanging out. We have to grapple with our many identities and where that positions us when it comes to power. Basically, y'all, we got to get better at talking about identity. They got to get better at talking about power in public, public ways. So in that vein, before I get into our text for this morning, I feel like I just want to say a little bit about my own identities. So I'm somebody who grew up in the South. I'm very proud of that. I went to A&T. No, no Aggies in the house. Okay. All right. Got it. All right. Sorry. <laughs> I grew up in like a very black, very Southern, very proud world. And I was also somebody who did pretty well in school. Like I was, I'm a little bit competitive with the grades. I'm not gonna lie to you, all right? Somebody gave me a B in seminary and I like, I, I can't pass her on the street. You know, that kind of thing, all right? Um, but school taught me that success was connected to how well, yeah, you're laughing because you know it's true, okay. School taught me that success was connected to how well I could approximate whiteness. It taught me that, it taught me implicitly that success consisted in getting as close as possible to the white male ideal of invulnerability, of mastery, of control, of self-sufficiency as possible. And Dr. Willie James Jennings, who is brilliant, um, he writes really profoundly about this if you're interested. Essentially, there was an attempt an implicit attempt, I think this is what Western education does, to educate me out of my intimate identities and to educate me into the cultural values of whiteness. 
There's this goal to, I think, accustom me and to accustom people like me to their concerns never showing up in public space. I think there's this sense where we are expected to always engage cross-culturally, but to never name that. It's taken me a long time to reclaim the identities that are fundamental to me and to acknowledge how they deepen my understanding of truth rather than detract from it. So I want to just take a couple minutes to say what those identities are. I hope this can be a little bit of just what I hope happens more in the church as we have conversations from the pulpit, but also in small groups and in our homes and as we gather that we talk really honestly about our identities. So first of all, I'm black. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I love it. The clapping. That's good. Okay. So I'm black. I come from, um, there's more to this, but essentially I come to, from enslaved people. And mining that identity for me has really made me think about the way in which my ancestors who were enslaved reclaimed, claimed and reclaimed a faith that really did not allow them. They were people who stole out into the woods and into ravines and into cane breaks to discover the liberating Christ. They were people who stole away from the gaze of the plantation, which I would say is the gaze of empire, to discover Christ the liberator. I have needed that identity, and I love what Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman says. Here's how she sums this up. We took our gods, went into the woods, and found Jesus for ourselves, right? That we found these cultural ways of, of uh, we retained our culture and yet were able to intuitively follow the spirit in discovering a different way. I would say a more true way of following Jesus. Second, I'm queer. Also a surprise in that probably my wife is here, my son is here, just running around queer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm related to this global family of people who are connected in many ways by being kicked out, by non-acceptance, by having to choose whether or not to be authentic or be loved, connected to these folks all around the world. And I think that queerness also has taught me something fundamental about my faith and something fundamental that I think something that I think is important to the faith of, of really everybody. I did a series on this at Resurrection City this past summer, and I'm going to grab this quote from that series. It's by the Reverend Elizabeth M. Edmond. And think about how, as you read this, as I read this, this applies to everybody who calls himself a Christian. Queer individuals are called to perceive a truth inside themselves. Name it as an identity marker. Reckon with it. Tell the truth about it even in the face of hostility. Find others who perceive a comparable identity marker and build community for the betterment of all of us. That to me is the essence of the spiritual journey, she says. It is more than that. In my faith tradition, we refer to that as vocation. That is call, it is a vocation. And I would say I love getting to embody that part of my identity. I'm a woman, 
I identify as a woman, and that means that uh, it has taken me a long time to, you know, come to, to, to embrace the realities that the Holy Spirit is always referred to in Scripture as a woman, and I don't know why we can't just say she. Um, it has taken me a long time to think about, you know, the ways in which uh, there's some amazing scholarship that's coming out about um, the way in which El Shaddai is probably best translated as the breasted God, the way in which nourishment, the nourishing God is also central and yet is often never centered. And then finally, I'm a gender non-conforming person, which basically means that I identify as a woman, that my gender expression often does not match what uh, is perceived, I guess, to be female in, this, in our culture. And I don't often, I don't always, you can ask my wife about this, I don't always, though, play into the stereotypes that come with womanhood. And I feel like that part of my identity has taught me so much about the God who is not just a God of night and day, but is also a God of dawn and dusk. One more quote, y'all. And I, Justin, I told you, Justin uses the quotes. I said, I'm going to come with the quotes, all right? <laughs> so here's what Austin Hartke says about that when talking about the Genesis 1 language of male and female. He says, this chapter talks about night and day and land and water, but we also have dusk and marshes. These verses don't mean there's only land and water and there's nowhere where the, these two meet. These binaries aren't meant to speak to all of reality. They invite us into thinking about everything between and beyond. In the same way we call God the Alpha and Omega, implying all things from first to last and in between, the author of Genesis 1 is merely using the same dualistic poetic device to corral the infinite diversity of creation. Sorry into categories we can easily understand. So I started here because again, I think that if we are going to live into a vision of multi, we have to get good at hearing each other's stories. We have to get good at claiming the ways in which our identities can be pathways into spiritual formation in the way of Christ. We have to get good at listening to the stories of others. And I think we have to get really good at learning what it is to not just interpret the Bible, but to also interpret our own lives, to exegete our own lives. Now, there's one thing that I didn't say when I talked about these identities. What I didn't say is that I hold multiple identities that are marginalized and I exist toward the top of, I'm gonna call it a pyramid, the economic pyramid in the world. And that also is an important part of my story and something that I have to claim because it places me closer to privilege than maybe uh, I would like to acknowledge. It's not fundamental to who I am, but it does open up possibilities and protections and advantages that other folks do not have. And I can easily play into the oppression of other people. Yesterday was Trans Remembrance Day. This is the perfect example of that for me. The day when 
we lament and mourn and grieve specifically the individuals who were killed because, who were murdered because they're trans. And every year as I look at that list and look at the faces of folks who are killed, I realize that just because of my resources, I, I probably am not nearly under as much threat. I realize that I can use my economic privilege to oppress, and I have to claim that part of my story. So what I'm essentially naming, y'all know, this is DC, I know y'all know is intersectionality, right? Intersectionality, so this basic definition, intersectionality is the recognition of the simultaneity of multiple social identities within interlocking systems of oppression. People experience all ways and at once their gender, race, sexual identity, ability, age, social class, nation, and religion, and those intertwined identities locate them into, in relation to structures of power and domination. Now, I have said a lot by way of preface. You, it was race, y'all. There was a lot to say this weekend about it, okay? is what we're talking about. There's a lot to say. But at the end of the day, I'm not a trained activist or organizer or diversity, equity, inclusion expert. I'm a pastor. So we are going to go and spend a few more minutes together and talk some about Genesis 16. Because I think that that story gets at the heart of intersectional identity and power dynamics. So let's turn there. Open your Bible, your app, whatever you have. And we're going to go to Genesis 16, 1 through 14. Genesis 16, 1 through 14. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. He went into Hagar and, Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she ran away. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that, the offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. 
And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and with everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are Elroy. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahoroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. All right, take a second to look over that text. I know sometimes when we read it, it's a lot. So just take a second to ground yourself in the text, just a few minutes. So now before I draw anything, any kind of meaning out of this text, I have to just foreground the reality that this story is about a woman, about a human being who is considered little more than an object. It's about a person whose body is used. And I don't want to take that lightly. Her body is used for the benefit of the powerful in the story. She has neither a right to her own body or the right to her own children if they're fathered with Abram. Her name means stranger or alien, and yet Abram and Sarah never even referred to her even as that. As one commentator puts it, Hagar is the faithful maid exploited, the black woman used by the male and abused by the female of the ruling class, the surrogate mother, the resident alien without legal recourse, the other woman, the runaway youth, the religious fleeing from affliction, the pregnant young woman alone, the expelled wife, the divorced mother with child, the shopping bag lady carrying bread and water, the homeless woman, the indigent relying upon handouts from the power structures, the welfare mother, and the self-effacing female whose own identity shrinks in service to others. And then the second thing I want to say about this story is that in it, fertility is power. Fertility is power. In the ancient Near Eastern context from which this story comes, having children was security and status. And every person in that story, in this story, has to define how they're going to relate to this power that fertility bestowed. Abram is a man in a patriarchal world. Sarah is a woman, but she's a wealthy woman. And Hagar is a foreign-born slave. And they all have to make decisions about power. And I think this is probably clear, but some of us in this room are Sarah's, and some of us are Hagar's. Some of us easily have access to power, and some of us are running to places, wilderness places, running to places of isolation to escape the very institutions, the very places that are considered to carry God's blessing. And most of us are probably both in some way. 
And that's what's brilliant about this story. You get the cold, hard fact right at the beginning of the story that Sarah is unable to have children. And then in light of that cold, hard fact, you get the fact, you get Sarah's desire to have children. And in the face of her plight, she follows what is a common Near Eastern custom. She tells Abram to use Hagar as a surrogate so that she can have a child, which she, as the primary wife, would have legal rights to. And if any of you have watched The Handmaid's Tale or read that story, you probably are familiar with this basic concept, even though it's pretty far into our cultural sensibility. But then a problem arises because the text says that Hagar looks with contempt on her mistress. A better translation of that is that Hagar, or is that basically Sarah is lowered in Hagar's eyes, which I think probably most of us would kind of understand. But there's no sense, there's in, in many ways, we can't fully get into what Hagar must be feeling. As a foreigner, as a slave, she has no rights. And yet something changes in her in this moment when her body is used. And I, when I think about this, I, I, so, I, just, I just read Out Love by uh, Julie Rogers. And I was struck by the way in which she talked about the way her body was used um, in, in the movement, you know, to, to essentially the, the movement for conversion therapy. And I think many of us as people of color have this sense, not maybe as Hagar does, but that our bodies are used in spaces to make certain communities seem a certain way. Another thing I just wanna say about this text that you should notice is that Sarah uses legal language to call Abram to account for the inappropriateness of Hagar's attitude. Abram is responsible for this. He's the one that's supposed to correct the situation, but he gives power to Sarah, who then abuses her power over Hagar. And I want you to know, if you still have your text open, that the same word, that's this idea that uh, I think the text says in the NRSV, that Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar. That is the same word used for the oppression um, that later comes of the Hebrews by the, by the Egyptians. Dealt harshly, oppressed, probably physically abused is the sense of that word. So much that Hagar runs away. And then with Hagar's flight into the wilderness, we get into the second part of the story. Basically, God has a conversation with the slave, enslaved woman. She is able to actually speak. God gives her promises that mirror the promises of the chosen people. And then Hagar becomes the first person in the biblical narrative to encounter God and the only person in the Hebrew Bible to name God. I said earlier that I think this story has a lot to do with identity and intersectionality and what it can, and it has lots of lessons to teach us about what it means to be a church that is multi. So I wanna just end with kind of five things. Um, I know I broke the rule, it's supposed to be three, I'm sorry. Five things um, that I think can be drawn out of this story that can challenge us uh, before we sit down, before I sit down. So the first thing, and you'll note here that these five things, I frame them as for folks who are closer to privilege and further from privilege. Um, so find yourself in that 
be honest about that, all right? But I want to name that identity is complicated, and so we always have to be thinking about this. So the first thing, if you are a person who is far from the advantages of whiteness, I think this story can remind you of your capacity to become the oppressor. Note that later the Egyptians do become the oppressor of the Hebrew slaves. The situation is reversed, and when they have the opportunity for power over, abusive power over, they take it. I think that there's a way in which many of us have to remember that the system is within us. And we always have to grapple with that reality that the system is in us. We have to remember that it doesn't come natural to us to relate differently to power. And I want to think that it does, but it, it doesn't. It does. It's a little thing called sin. Um, it doesn't. And I think that we have to be honest. And, and this, is, um, this, this uh, insight comes from Pastor Delante Ghost, who's a friend of this community. He talks about that you know, sometimes those of us who are far from privilege, we just wanna be them instead of being free. And I think that we really have to grapple with that reality. I think it can lead us to humility in community. Second, second, if you are a person who has been given the advantages of whiteness, you have to remember that doing what is customary is often to do what is complicit in oppression. Within the worldview of this story, Sarah has every right to do what she does. There is really in the text no, the narrator doesn't really seem to think anything badly of what she does. Sarah understands that God works through human beings, so she, to fulfill the promise, she takes, hum, takes the initiative. It's well within her right. She's doing what is customary. It's perfectly acceptable. It's her prerogative. And in doing that, she becomes the oppressor. This woman of faith furthers a narrative that whatever you produce, whatever Hagar produced, labor or food or children, she had the right to. And I'm just going to name that that is really the story of our country. It so easily can become our own individual story if those of us with privilege don't question what is customary over and over and over again. Third, if you are a person who has been accorded the privileges of whiteness, then you have to intentionally practice the follow and follow the seeing and the listening God. I think one of my favorite things, I hope you look at you go home and you kind of think about this story a little bit more, is that the way in which Hagar encounters God, he speaks to her, but the way in which she identifies with him is really as the God who sees her and hears her, who is attentive to her, who is with her, who is in solidarity with her. And I think that there's a little bit of a challenge for folks in the room, for those of us who have access to privilege to, to identify with that, that God who is able to hear and see. Stop talking for a little while and listen. That God who is able to experience pain with. And I'll just say really honestly, I'm gonna say this really honestly, every time I've been in a community that is multi, that is multi, that is multiracial, I definitely always still feel the need to be seen and heard by my friends who are in small group to be asked after. So there's just this personal, I think, challenge um, around that. 
Number four, if you are a person who is far from the advantages of whiteness, you will have to grapple with what it means that your freedom is inextricably bound up with those who have more privilege. The hardest line in this text to me comes in verse nine, when basically God tells Hagar to go back to her mistress and submit. It is a line that I hate. It is a line that feels patently unfair and really completely unjust. I wonder if this is one of those lines that maybe is shaped a little bit more by the culture of the writer than the will of God. And yet when I read it, I, I have to confront one of the things that too often has been true about the lives of marginalized and oppressed people. Hagar is given a promise and it's a promise that she has to wait for. It's not fair at all. Some scholars even think that Hagar has to return to Sarah because she can't be truly free legally or in any other way until she resolves the dispute with Sarah. Hagar is promised a future of non-oppression. Her son Ishmael is going to, I think the text says he's going to be a wild ass of a man, which they're praised later in scripture, go to Job. But he's going to be this person that roams freely about in the desert, in the wilderness, apart from oppression. And yet she can't have that future promise fulfilled until she goes back. How do we make peace with that reality? I like that I'm on the, the question asking side of that then, as opposed to the answering side of that. How do we make peace with the fact that our liberation and our future is also tied to that of white folks and their freedom? And I mean their real freedom. Finally, number five, fifth, if you are a person who benefits from the advantages of whiteness, you'll have to give up the hope of the promised land so that everybody can be free. You have to give up the sense of being chosen, of being the special people. I mean, our history is filled with the way in which the narrative of chosenness and the promised land has been co-opted over and over and over again to justify genocide and all kinds of erasure. You have to give up power. The call is to forsake the dream of the promised land, the dream of the land flowing with milk and honey, which is really the dream of perpetual affluence. You have to embrace your own need, your own insecurity and powerlessness and vulnerability like the rest of us. You have to enter the wilderness just as the Hagars of the world do and meet God there. Y'all, there is so, so much to say and so much left to say, both about this story, this text, which is brilliant, and about the experience of, of figuring out what it means not just to contentedly hang out together, but to live into God's vision of the kingdom of God. As we travel this road of becoming a church that can embrace difference, may we learn how to claim both what is beautiful and what is hard about our own identities. And may we be set free from power over into power for and power with. Amen.